My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Recognize the tune. <laughs> Good way to start here. And as Aaron mentioned, uh, I'm, I'm Shane. I serve as the administ- administrative pastor here at Sunrise. It's uh, my delight to teach here this morning and to this series we're calling Gospel at Work. And, you know, my dad, he, he taught me a lot about life. And one of the things I am most grateful for is that he instilled in me a strong work ethic. He modeled it by the hard work that he did, and he trained me by giving me work to do. Lots of work. <laughs> hard work. Just to give you a picture here, uh, when I was in elementary school, second grade, uh, my dad, who was a city boy through and through, grew up in the U District of Seattle, decided he was going to buy a 160-acre working farm in the middle of nowhere, southeastern Minnesota, for the distinct purpose of teaching his kids about farm life and all the hard work that goes into food. And so we as a family, my two older sisters and me, all elementary school, we worked the farm. We ate, we we grew oats and corn and hay, and we harvested that, and we raised animals, you know, and we learned how to to, uh, slaughter animals, and we did all that stuff, and we learned it as we were going. And So so picture with me, I know it's maybe hard, some of you grew up in that part of the world, but so morning chores, you know, we're not talking about feeding the cat. No, pitch dark, 5 a.m., Minnesota, so what, 10 degrees, right, snow on the ground, yeah, go out before school, do some chores, yeah, that was winter, summer, not that much better, Uh, haying season, I mean, to this day, just the smell of hay, Put these images in my head and just kind of a chill down my spine as I think of the dirty, dusty, sweaty work that got, you know, you had to go out there and you had to, hay bales were, were twice my size and these kids, you can picture them stacking them onto the wagon and then driving back to the barn and then doing the opposite and stacking them back in the barn. Am I getting any sympathy here? <laughs> well, the experiment on the farm lasted about four years and, and then we moved closer to the city uh, but that didn't end the hard work. Again, this is something my dad decided he really wanted to make sure that I understood. And, and so when I was in high school, he, he gave me a significant project to do every summer. Because he didn't want me to play golf all summer. And so like one summer, I, I was assigned to paint the exterior of my house with a roller by myself. It was no small house. 
Another summer, a, a, a hillside had collapsed in the back of our garage, and so he assigned me to dig it out, out from behind the garage, about 20 foot by 4 foot by 6 foot wet clay with a, right? You get the picture there? Another summer, he said, I want you to clear the hill blackberry bushes along the driveway, and he handed me a machete. Our driveway was a quarter mile long. My dad taught me how to work hard, how to finish a job, to finish what you start, how to take pride in your work. And I'll tell you, I didn't appreciate it very much when I was a child and a teenager. But boy, as an adult, I am so grateful for what he taught me. Like it or not, work dominates our lives. We work to earn a living. We work to, to take care of a home, to raise a family. We work to make a difference in the world. We work to add beauty to the world around us. Add it all up, and we will spend about 75% of our waking hours working. And, and even when we're not working, we're thinking about work. We're talking about work. We're planning for work or otherwise occupied with work. Yet most of us, if we admit to it, would say that, that work is something we have to do rather than what we want to do. Work is a necessity more than a desire. The necessary evil we do in order to get to the things we want to do. We even have phrases to capture this goal. You know, I'm working for the weekend, or it's almost quitting time, or thank God it's... You know the phrases. Now, for some of us, this becomes a life goal. We work and scrimp and save so that we can get to that retirement, you know, early if possible, right? And then we can really live. Work, in, from that vantage point, is a concession to life. You have to do what you have to do. But this is also the road to a wasted life. As I mentioned earlier, 75% of your waking hours, you will spend more time working than pretty much doing anything else on the brief life that we have here on earth. Sadly, many people realize this too late. You endure work only to discover that when the work is over, we don't know what to live for or even how to live. So for the next three Sundays, we're going to take a look at work. In particular, we're going to look at how the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, influences how we approach work and how we engage in our work. My task for today is to demonstrate how work plays a crucial role in the big story of the Bible. And so for those of you who like to know kind of where we're going, the, the roadmap for today, I'm going to put it up and just in case you fall asleep or Am I out here. Yeah. You might need to bring me a handheld mic because this has happened before. So frequency interruptions and things. But, uh, okay. All right, there we go. Now I get to have two things in my hand. We'll see how that works for us today. All right, so we put it up here on the screen. Here's, here's our roadmap for today. More than a concession to life, work is God's provision for a good life. So more than a concession to life, work is God's provision for a good life. So when it comes to understanding the biblical perspective on a particular topic, today we're a topic of work, we need to start at the beginning. In the Bible, that means going to the book of Genesis. 
And in the book of Genesis, the first three chapters in particular play an outsized role in understanding the big picture story of the Bible. It sets the course. It's the foundation. So that's where I want to start here today. And when we go to the beginning of the story, we discover it doesn't begin with God merely introducing himself. Kind of like, hey, my name is God. No. It begins with a story of God working. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you read through the rest of Genesis chapter 1, and you get a picture of God at work. And it is not one of drudgery. It's not one uh, of just a burden of some kind. We don't hear God saying, another day, another thing to create. Can't wait to get to that Sabbath day. I'm going to create on day 7. Okay? That's not the way it goes. No, instead we get a picture of God delightfully working. He's joyful. It's exuberant picture. We see this in the repetition of the word good at the end of each day. God, God is delightfully creating things like star clusters and planets and clouds and oceans and exquisite detail and things like wildflowers and sequoia trees and, and clownfish and orangutans and all the work like that, right? And, and it's like at the end of each time that he creates something, he goes like, oh man, that's good. That's good. That's what's going on there. And it, and it culminates, caps it all off with the creation of human beings made in his image to share in his joy, which gives him even more delight. And at the end of that day, he says, oh, this is very good. This is very good. And at the conclusion of that opening narrative, it's at the beginning of chapter 2, we see this. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. And on the seventh day, God... God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, because it was the day when he rested from all the work of his creation. Now, when this passage is taught, you've probably seen it before, it's usually taught to emphasize rest, how God rested, and how we rest as well in following God's example, and that's rightfully so. But there's something else going on in this passage that's important for us to see today. But to understand that, we need to understand that when you read a passage in the Bible, any passage, anytime there's repetition in a short period of time, in a short you know, part of the passage, it's for emphasis. Sometimes the same thing is repeated in exact words, and you're wondering, why did he say that again? It's for emphasis. It's kind of like mom did, right? When you're growing up, you know, I had to say it several times so that we'll get it. So in this passage, you'll see that the word rest is repeated twice there. Almost says the same thing. But I also want you to notice that work is repeated three times. Maybe a little extra emphasis there. What also makes this stand out is this is the first time the word work is used in the Bible. And when you, again, when you want to understand a topic in the Bible, that's another important thing to do. Go to where it is first mentioned, and that kind of sets the course off in time for how it's, it's used in the rest of the story. So here at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, we see these, the, not, we're getting a picture of who God is, and a big part of who God is, is God at work. So Genesis chapter 1, to get the creation narrative, provides a sweeping picture of God delightfully working. Genesis chapter 2 then zooms in on the creation of human beings. And in chapter 2, you get the first several verses, you get a, you get a zoom in of God creating what we call the Garden of Eden. Now, sometimes when you picture that in your head while you're reading along, maybe you picture a backyard garden plot or maybe a, the back 40 or something like that. Now, a, a better picture I'd like for you to have in your mind is the Amazon rainforest. Okay? Vast. Just diverse. Just amazing. Right? That's what's going on. So I want you to have that picture in your head as we read and pick up in verse 15 where we read this. 
The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So God first created the man, and then he created the woman. And he placed them in this immense paradise together so that they could share in his joy of working. Now, the emphasis in that, word, in that sentence is the word share. Okay, it's God's work. It's God's garden. He didn't need them, right? We saw that in chapter 1. But he wanted to share it with them. I mean, get the picture, get the picture in your head. Two people said, okay, you manage, uh, take care of the Amazon rainforest, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a silly picture. Unless you understand that they are invited to share in his joy, So first and foremost, we need to understand that this is a picture about relationship. God wanted a relationship with them, and that relationship involved sharing work together. So if you don't have a picture yet, I want you to get this picture in your head of God as the happiest, most passionate being in the universe. He wanted to share his joy with the humans that he created. And the primary way to experiencing God's joy is not merely through what he has made. The primary avenue for experiencing God's joy is by trusting his good heart and being in relationship and getting involved in what he is doing. And I believe that's why God gave them a limit. He gave them a limit in that passage. Do you see that, right? He said, basically, all of this is yours, except this one, this one tree. That's mine. Okay, trust me on that. Because freedom necessarily, or love necessarily involves freedom. And freedom necessarily involves limits. Now, he could have made them robots with no free choice, but that's not how love works. Love involves the freedom to choose, and that's what God gave those first humans. Now, sadly, those, that first man and the first woman didn't want to merely share in God's work. In Genesis chapter 3, we learn that Adam and Eve received and believed a lie that God was holding out on them. They received and believed the lie that they needed to work for their own happiness. They received and believed the lie that limits, even the smallest of limits, hinder freedom. So they disregarded God's kind warning and instruction, and they learned that giving in to temptation did not increase their pleasure. No, it introduced sin and suffering. And that first sin... That primary consequences of that sin involved work. We see this in chapter 3 in what is often called the curse. In chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. And to the man, God said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree of the, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made, for you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. So what we see here is that God cursed the ground. Okay, he did not curse the humans. I don't know if you ever thought of it that way. Okay, the humans are not cursed. The ground was cursed. And I believe what we see here is that the ground is cursed so that the ground would not cooperate with any human effort to find meaning in work apart from God. Do you see that? The ground will not cooperate. 
It's going to grow thorns and thistles. You're going to plow it today. You're going to clear it today and tomorrow, thorns and thistles. And you're going to plow it today and clear it today and tomorrow, thorns and thistles. It won't cooperate. So instead, what we see is that, that, it's, that it, what we have here is that it's not punitive, it's protective. If you see it from that lens, it's not punitive, it's protective. Work now will involve pain and futility and struggle. Here's the thing. God knows that we will seek to find our identity and happiness apart from him through our work. He knows that. He doesn't want that. Because, remember, the most important thing is to trust God's good heart, not to find happiness through what he has made. So through the curse, we will know that work will never fully cooperate with our desire to find happiness in it. It will never satisfy the deep places of our soul. Through Through the curse, God wants us to see our need for him above all else. So Genesis chapters 1 and 2 introduce the wonder and the importance of work. Genesis chapter 3 introduces the, the struggle and the pain of work. And it's all embedded in the very fabric of creation. Okay? So that's where it starts. The next kind of mountaintop, if you will, and the topic of work to go to in the Bible to understand the big story is to turn, I think, to the book of the Proverbs. The book of the Proverbs provide insight into general observable truths about life. That's why they're there. General observable truths. And so as we'd expect, based on what we just saw in Genesis, it's going to have some things to say about work. In particular, the writer of the Proverbs contrasts hard work with laziness. In chapter 13, verse, verse 4, we see this. Lazy people want much but get little, but those who work hard will prosper. In a very pithy proverb, we get a general observable truth that, if you see, look at it, you see what we just learned about in Genesis. We hear the echoes of it. Generally speaking, hard work leads to a good life, a prosperous life, because that's how God created things. It's written into the very fabric of the universe. All we have to do to understand the importance of work is to pay attention to creation, in other words. And in the Proverbs, the writer of the Proverbs wants us in particular to look at ants. Okay? The the industry of ants. In Proverbs 6, we see this. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Okay, but that didn't get your attention, right? (laughs) Learn from their ways. Become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. But you, lazy bones, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? And then we get, this is a, something we see in the Proverbs several times. It's like a little, a little pithy saying, a little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. You see, all creatures work. Do you ever think about that? All creatures work because work is written into the fabric of the universe. But with one exception. Only humans get the choice in the matter. Only humans get a choice. And so here, the writer, the writer of the Proverbs, writer of Proverbs invites us to choose wisely and to see work as a necessary part of life and the refusal to work as a source of trouble. So we have Genesis, which sets the foundation for work. And we have Proverbs, which emphasizes the importance of work. And I want to look at one more kind of mountaintop, one more high point in the scriptures in this idea of getting an understanding of the big story picture 
of work in the Bible. And, and that's what I want to look at is, a, is the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus. Because in him we see that he both fulfilled Genesis and Proverbs and he illustrated the gospel at work. So consider this. Jesus lived on earth for 33 years. 33 short years to illustrate a perfect human life. Now you may know this or not, but most of what we know about Jesus is the last three years of his life, as we found in the gospel stories in the Bible. The last three years. Have you ever wondered what he did for the other 30 years? It's an interesting question. According to the culture of the time, we can know that the first 13 years he was a child and he did child things in the culture of that time. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll set those aside. That still leaves 17 years, more than half of his life. What was he doing? We don't really know. Isn't that interesting? We don't really know. Now, by observing the culture of the time and by, by looking at one particular place in the gospel story, and it's only a passing reference. Okay, from, if you understand the culture of the time, we can know that Jesus, as the oldest son, would have apprenticed to his father. Okay, that was what the oldest son did in that culture. He learned the family trade from the father. Now, and again, this, in this passing reference story, we get an idea of what that meant. And it's a story that's found both in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Mark, it's in chapter 6. This is what we see. It says, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter. The son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. They refused to believe in him. He's doing all this teaching stuff, and he was just a carpenter. That's how they knew him in his hometown. The Matthew account is almost identical, except that they say he's just the son of a carpenter, which, of course, is saying the same thing. You may wonder, well, why am I emphasizing this? I think it should catch our attention that for 17 out of the 33 years, over half his life, Jesus lived in obscurity, anonymously, as a carpenter, working. So, G so God becomes human to rescue the world from the effects of sin. He models the perfect human life. In the majority of his years, he's working in obscurity far from the centers of power. Just like us. And I think that helps us to know that even obscure work matters to God. So what about the three years of Jesus' life that we do know about? What part does work play in that? If you were around us here for the, at the beginning of the year, you know that we took a long walk through the life of Jesus as seen through his good friend, John. And we didn't highlight it at, at the time, but I want to highlight now how often we see work in that story. Jesus, I should say, Jesus referring to his work, Be, picking up in John chapter 4. And I just want to read through these. John chapter 4, we you see him saying, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. John 5, my father is always working, and so am I. John 9, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, then no one can work. John 10, I have already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is 
the work I do in my Father's name. Later in chapter 10, don't believe me unless I carry out my Father's work. In John 14, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. In John 17, I pray glory, I I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus knew he had work to do. He knew that's what he was sent to do. And he found joy in doing it. And this last one here comes from the, 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 the lengthy prayer that Jesus prayed over his disciples right before he died for your sins and mine. And by having that in there, embedded in that prayer, basically Jesus gives the purpose for his work. And in so doing, the purpose for your work and my work. It's to bring glory to God. Now, I just want you to hear, do you hear the echoes of Genesis? As human beings, we are made in the image of God. In other words, every one of us reflects something unique of God that nobody else ever has or ever will. And when you work, you are putting that on display. You are putting on display what God made you to do, that part of himself to reflect to the world around you that nobody else can in this point, in this place, at this time. That's why Paul echoes this in his letter to the Corinthians where he says, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, God is interested in your, in your work because more than a concession to life, God's Work is God's provision for a good life. Now, as part of this, well, this three-week series, I, I wanted you to, just to hear from some people here at Sunrise who have found joy and purpose in their everyday work. Today, I want you to hear from Shireen Horton. Let's watch this together. It's what makes my heart feel like I've been successful. Hi, my name is Shireen, and I am a public school teacher for 32 years so far. Choosing to be a teacher is something that I've always wanted to do. I'm a teacher in a lot of different ways, but mainly it has been in the school system. I grew up um, watching my dad be a teacher. He was a middle school teacher at Brown Middle School for his whole career. And I had the opportunity to watch him teach, help him set up his room, all those different kinds of things. And I didn't realize it at the time, what kind of a seed that was planting. And that desire to help people be better is what he passed on to me. And God used that. I wouldn't say that he thought I should be a teacher. He, in fact, he even tried to encourage me to go towards like working at the community college level because he knew how hard it was. It's so ingrained in me to want to take someone or a student and figure out where it is that they're confused or where they're lost or what part of the math they don't quite understand or what what are they doing what phonics do they not have solid that that's why they're struggling with these particular words whatever it is and then help them get over that hump that is such a big deal to me it it gives me kudos and yes I get a paycheck and yes teachers have pretty good benefits but That's not really why I do it. Um, It's definitely more for 
the satisfaction I get for knowing I've helped somebody else to become better. And it is exhausting. Summers are well-deserved. <laughs> it's hard work. It's multitasking at its finest. But I just get so much joy from helping people be better. In fact, another way that I kind of teach or coach is working with women. And it's, it's that same joy I get out of watching people improve and get better. Helping them to realize, you know, how can they be that next level up with their relationship with God or their level up with the relationship with their spouse or their children and how do I help them to, to get that? So some people would ask how a Christian could be um, a disciple maker within a public school system. There have been times when a student is having a really hard time and I know that maybe they go to church or Maybe they've mentioned God before, and so I'll just, you know, pull them aside maybe during recess and say, can I share something about God with you? And they almost always say yes, of course. And, and I'm just able to then love on them from, from like that perspective, and it, you can just see them relax. And I spoke with parents, too, in the same way. I'd have a parent crying on the phone, and, and I would say, can I pray for you? I've definitely had the opportunity to bring that part of my life into a public school situation. You know, I've got six more years or so before I retire and I really enjoy what I'm doing. I don't know if I'll be ready to retire in six years. It's just such a big deal to me and it's what makes life enjoyable and fun and a challenge because it is hard. I'm so glad that I chose it and stuck it out. Yeah, thanks for Shereen for sharing your work story. My friends, here's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ for our work. Jesus, God in human flesh, lived the perfect human life, the life you and I know we should live but can't. He died for our imperfection, including our inability to engage work properly, either putting too much emphasis and trying to find our value in work or trying to avoid work and thinking that life's going to come from somewhere else. The Bible calls that sin, and Jesus died for it. But he also rose from the dead, forever conquering sin and death. He ascended into heaven, where right now he is working. He's not only holding together the entire universe, he is working as the perfect mediator between God and us as humans. And when you put your trust in him, he invites you to be a part of his family with God as your perfect human father. I'm sorry, your perfect father. And just like my dad taught me the importance of work, so God teaches us the importance of work. Only now all of our work fits into we're working in the kingdom of God. Because more than a concession to life, work is God's provision for a good life. Would you pray with me? We thank you, God, that you love us so much. We thank you that you model for us what we're created to be. And would we today see ourselves as reflecting something good of you? And, and when, especially when we are redeemed in Christ, we can be a part of your kingdom. We can know that we are made for a purpose, that we are called according to who you designed us to be. So give us a curiosity of who you are and give us a curiosity of who we are and then give us the courage to engage the world around us through work, whether that's to earn a paycheck, whether that's to raise a family, whether that's to, to help be put together this, what we do here at church, whether it is to engage the community around us with good news. We pray believing and hoping in the name of Jesus. Amen.